Hello and welcome to No Character Limit. My name is Robert Thurk, and today you're going to hear episode 18 of my book entitled Ultima Thule Unraveling the Unknown. In today's chapter, you're going to hear all of chapter 11, which is called The Making of a Meteorite, Chondrite, Achondrite, and Iron. So, what is the oldest thing that you've ever touched? Was it an ancient ruin, a rock from a craton, one of those oldest rocks that are on the earth? What is the upper limit of the age of something that we could touch with our own hands? There is a craton in Canada that's estimated to be almost 4.3 billion years old. But with meteorites, it's possible to touch something before even the Earth existed. Over the last episode, I've been leading up to some meteorite teasers, as well as the new time scales that we're going to be working within. The hundreds of millions to billions of years. Specifically, in the last episode, I talked about the Yarrabubba impact which is the oldest impact crater in the world found in Australia that may have played a role in ending the Huronian Ice Age over 2 billion years ago. And I've also talked about the Bedout Crater off of the coast of Australia and the Wilkes Land Anomaly in Antarctica, which were both theorized to play a role in the end Permian extinction event. But as we move into the final few chapters of this book, meteorites, asteroids, comets, they're going to play a large role in what I'm about to share with you to end this book. What are these rocks that fall from the sky? Are they all versions of the same thing, or are they different? It turns out that meteorites can have wildly different composition, origins, and ages. So what I'm going to share with you today are three basic ways to classify space rocks, chondrites, achondrites, and irons. It's these rocks that fall from the sky that give us insight into the universe, that ultimately that surrounds us on all sides, and yet we are fully a part of. And these rocks may even hold the secret to the origin of life. Before we get into the actual text of the book, I want to make note that there are further ways to subdivide and categorize meteorites, but that I am only sharing a pretty basic way to understand them that 
pretty much all meteorites can fit within. This whole episode is going to be about the three different types. In the book, I show what these three different types of meteorites look like. I show examples of dwarf planets where asteroids and comets can be found within the solar system, as well as some unique pictures of specific meteorites that I talk about in this episode. So, if you would like to see the images, you can always give a donation. With every donation, I provide a PDF copy of the book, and you get a chance to see the whole thing so you don't have to wait for future episodes to be released. If you have just been enjoying listening or can't afford a donation, you could always like, rate, review, or tell a friend about No Character Limit. The more that you interact with this podcast, the more people will find out about it. You can also follow me at no character limit at mastodon.world. And finally, you can always reach out to me at no character limit at protonmail.com. So I hope you enjoy this episode. It is one of my favorite chapters, and it's called The Making of a Meteorite, Chondrite, Achondrite, and Iron. Chapter 11. The Making of a Meteorite. Chondrite, Achondrite, and Iron. Part 1. Chondrite's Solar Beginnings. Wilkes Land Crater is just one of many mysteries that lay hidden in the alien continent of Antarctica. It's Isolation from civilization truly stands a world apart, giving those few who get the honor of traveling there a glimpse of a Martian landscape right here on Earth. Once away from the shores of the protected continent, the sounds of the penguins and seagulls fade, and all that is left to hear is the wind blowing across an inhospitably frozen landscape. Rocks and ice become the only features bathed in the gaze of the heavens, whether it is the unblinking eye of the sun or the twinkling abyss of the night sky, each taking their turn for months on end. And when that abyss sends a message to Earth, Antarctica is always ready to receive it. Antarctica has a special relationship with the sky that none of the other continents can truly claim. While the rest of the continents tend to writhe in turmoil, churning any space debris into the ground, 
Antarctica will freeze the delivery as if it were a time capsule. It's very possible that Wilkesland Crater may be one of the largest impacts to have hit the planet, with Antarctica encasing its 250-million-year-old imprint under a mile of ice, preserving the trauma. Aside from a few deserts and tundra around the planet, most other continents would have hidden such a large impact long ago, underwater, magma, or erosion. Antarctica's icy landscape preserves more than just the craters, though. Antarctica is home to one of the Earth's best meteorite hunting locations. This is not because Antarctica is any more of a magnet for meteors. Actually, less meteors fall at the poles than the equator. But it is Antarctica's ability to preserve them that makes it such a great location to find meteorites. Oceans drown them. Winds bury them. Rainfall erodes them. Environments camouflage them, which makes finding meteorites a challenge in most places on Earth. But when a meteorite smashes into the giant ice sheet that covers most of the continent of Antarctica, it is about the easiest place on the planet to spot these rare and mysterious rocks. Meteorites are one of the only ways to touch something that has existed for as long or longer than the Earth or even our Sun, a direct link to the cosmos. Nearby the Shackleton Mountains in East Antarctica is a region called the Outer Recovery Ice Fields a flat ice sheet consisting of snow and sky for as far as the eye can see. A place where the plasma-like flow of the ice sheet just happens to concentrate meteorites that stick out of the ice like blackheads. One team of British researchers came to this region in 2019 and 2020 to see just how many meteorites they could find. Just like Shackleton and Scott before them, they had to traverse the deadly and beautiful landscape with bone-chilling winds and mercurial weather living quite uncomfortably in the name of scientific discovery. They found about 120 meteorites in the area and were able to update mathematical models to simulate how much rock falls to the earth from the sky on an annual basis they were able to calculate that about 17,000 meteors fall to the Earth per year, pulverizing the Earth with a grand total of about 44,000 tons of rock. 
Although most of this space debris is the size of dust, the team also determined that about 35,000 pounds of meteorites hit the Earth each year that are 110 pounds or larger. Because Antarctica is a place that you can only really get to explore if you're working in the area of scientific research, there is a strict protocol for encountering a meteorite, and it is forbidden to be physically touched until it is analyzed. They are sealed in plastic and then brought back to civilization to be studied. To fully appreciate these visitors from space, here are some meteor basics. Before meteors enter the atmosphere, they are called meteoroids, and they can be traveling anywhere between 25,000 to 160,000 miles per hour as they make their entrance. The air friction from the atmosphere is so intense that the meteor can heat up to over 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit, burning through the sky like an Apollo command module returning to Earth. This burning rock is now officially a meteor, and what creates the light of a shooting star? generating heat and fire while briefly streaking by overhead. Most will burn up in the atmosphere long before they reach the Earth, but some will make the full journey to the ground, now called a meteorite, and with a keen eye, they can be found and collected to be studied. Finding a meteorite is incredibly rare, even in barren environments like the Sahara Desert, another major meteorite hunting ground. Typically, a meteorite will stand out from other rocks because it will be blackened from its heated descent and leave a cracked eggshell-type look to it. Chipping into the dark rock might reveal a much lighter interior, giving a clue that the unusual rock is extraterrestrial in nature. Now, to get a little more technical. Not all meteorites are created equal. About 80% of the meteorites that fall to Earth and are collected are a stony material called chondrites. Tiny crystalline or glassy flecks with globular shapes in the rock are called chondrules, where the chondrite gets its name. And chondrules are the most identifying feature of a meteorite. The reason why chondrites look so unique is because of how they were formed. Chondrites are some of the oldest rocks in the solar system, dating back to before the formation of the Earth 4.57 billion years ago. 
If we could travel back in time and look at this early solar system, it would not look anything like the one we know today. Instead of the sun, there would be a brightly glowing ball of diffuse gas, not yet fully formed into a star, known as a molecular cloud. About 4.57 billion years ago, this molecular cloud suddenly collapsed in on itself, gaining enough energy to ignite and become a star, our star, the sun. It was this violent blast forming a star that radiated outward that instantly melted the rocks in orbit around the forming sun into molten globules. These globules would eventually cool in the vacuum of space into spherical rocks, which became the chondrules that would be the primary composition of chondrites. These small, silicate, crystallized chondrules would then continue to orbit around the sun until they collided with more dense objects that were doing the same thing. At the same time, many meteoroids, asteroids, and dwarf planets were risking annihilation to achieve full planetary status. Entire planet-sized objects collided with each other during the formation of the early solar system. These chondrite meteorites found on Earth are the frozen tears hearkening back to this violent time, like a touchstone to the Titanomachy of the early solar system. A primordial war so ancient and violent that we cannot fully comprehend it. But as the sun fully formed, all of the rocks, asteroids, comets, and planets within its grasp would be bound to worship the sun for billions of years to come, steadying themselves into predictable orbits of submission. And when these frozen tears find their way to Earth and rain fire on the planet, they remind us that there existed a time before the sun's imperial reign, a time where the earth and sun didn't exist at all, reminding us that even those things which seem eternal were once also born. And the same fate that every person must one day face will too be faced by the earth and the sun, returning to the universe that made them, while the universe goes on existing for timescales that are even incomprehensible to the sun and earth. A small percentage of these chondrites, called carbonaceous chondrites, are special comprising of about only 3% of all meteorites that fall to Earth, 
Carbonaceous chondrites may be the most important type of meteorites for science because they contain organic materials, the sort needed to create life. Formed at a similar time as the typical chondrite, they may have experienced unique heating, cooling, or radioactive processes that provided them with the specialized organic material. They may hold ancient material that did not fully melt with the average chondrules when the sun was born meaning that they can hold material that is billions of years older than the solar system itself. One of the most important chemicals found in a carbonaceous chondrite is water. To this day, it's still a general mystery of how all of Earth's water found its way here. But one prevailing theory is that it was delivered in large quantities by comets and meteors like these from the outer reaches of the solar system. But water is not even the most exciting molecule these meteorites hold. They're called carbonaceous because they're carbon-rich chondrites. All life on Earth is carbon-based, and along with water, substantial amounts of carbon could have been delivered here as well. Other organic molecules are found on carbonaceous chondrites as well, including amino acids, the fundamental building blocks for all life. However, most of these amino acids do not resemble those found in life on Earth because they comprise of less complex chains. One meteorite found in 1990 deep in the Sahara called Akfer 086, along with the largest carbonaceous chondrite ever found, the Allende meteorite, potentially hold full proteins, according to one Massachusetts research team in 2020. A full protein is multiple chains of amino acids connected together, and if space rocks can hold such complex chains, it is promising for theories on the origin of life. However, the findings have yet to be peer-reviewed and are currently being scrutinized by other scientists in the field. Chapter 11, Part 2 Gifts from Alien Worlds achondrites. Another form of stony meteorites are called achondrites because they lack the chondrules indicative of cooling in the primordial solar system. In the Allen Hills ice fields of Antarctica, 
the same place where the oldest ice core was ever drilled, a special meteorite the size of a large potato was found in 1984 that has since become famous. The way ice fields are patrolled for meteorites is usually done on snowmobiles about 100 feet apart in the sub-zero temperatures of the blinding Antarctic summer. Like the many hundreds of other meteorites that are found in this manner, this meteorite was carefully collected and given the unremarkable name of ALH 84001, which stood for Allen Hills 1984, with the 001 indicating that it was the first meteorite found that season. At first inspection, it would have been obvious that the Allen Hills meteorite was an achondrite due to its lack of chondrules, comprising of only about 8 to 10% of all meteorites. Achondrites are almost as rare as carbonaceous chondrites. The fact that they're missing the chondrules tell us that they must not have originated during the early solar system like chondrites, but instead were formed well after the birth of the sun. Some achondrites have been found to be from protoplanets that once existed but have since collided into oblivion and rocketed their remnants to far-flung corners of the solar system, of which a small percentage make their way to Earth. But the Allen Hills meteorite was different. It had some signatures that begged a closer look. It was clearly an igneous rock, so it was likely created by a volcano, but not any volcano on Earth. As rocks form from magma, they hold tiny signatures of that planet's atmosphere at the time, something that is well known about rocks here on Earth and is used to understand the Earth's own climate history. The isotopic ratios of the elements found inside the Allen Hills meteorite matched the isotopic ratios that are found in the atmosphere of Mars, not Earth, making this Antarctic achondrite a Martian meteorite. Once that was realized, the Allen Hills meteorite became a hot topic to study. This unusual little green rock sitting in an ice field of Antarctica in 1984 must have had a very unusual adventure to have ended up there. Although it's not as old as most chondrites. The Allen Hills meteorite comes close, dating back to about 4.5 billion years ago.
when it was likely formed from a lava flow from an ancient Martian volcano. The largest volcano on Mars, and coincidentally also in the solar system, is called Olympus Mons, and it is only 115 million years old, making the Allen Hills meteorite much more ancient by comparison. The Allen Hills meteorite is not the only Martian meteorite that has been found on Earth, but it is by far the oldest several times over, even predating any known rock on Earth. Studies by geochemists have found that the Allen Hills meteorite consists of tiny granules of orange carbonate. This is notable because carbonate is usually formed in water, and further studies done on Mars have proven that water is both on the planet currently and may have actually covered the planet in its past. But in order for the Allen Hills meteorite to have the composition that it does, then temperatures on early Mars would have been more ideal than what we currently find on the dying planet today. Temperatures that make Antarctica seem warm by comparison. But the Allen Hills meteorite was a scientific gift that kept on giving, as high-resolution images taken of the meteorite found microscopic, worm-like shapes on it. Some scientists put forth that these were possibly fossilized microbial Martian life, which naturally began to cause excitement. They called on one of the world's top experts at identifying ancient fossilized microbes on Earth, microbes that were nearly as old as the Allen Hills meteorite itself. But when he took a look at the sample of the Martian rock, the idea that these strange worm-like features were biological fossils hit a dead end. He determined that without organic matter, there was no conclusive way to tell whether these were true signs of ancient life or our minds playing tricks on ourselves, hoping to see something that wasn't really there. It may look promising, but no conclusions could be made from the images alone. Therefore, the next step was to take pieces of the meteorite and pulverize it in search of trace organic materials. And some were found, reigniting the hopes that Martian life had conclusively been discovered. 
This research was conducted by NASA scientists, who then presented the findings to a panel of reviewers in 1996, which consisted of several preeminent scientists of the time, including Carl Sagan, and together attempted to make a determination on whether this meteorite fragment showed signs of past life. But quickly, it was found that there was a problem regarding the organic material found within the sample of the Allen Hills meteorite, specifically the form of hydrocarbons that were found within it. It's true that the hydrocarbons found in the sample were a biomarker in organic molecules like coal or petroleum, both of which couldn't exist without past life. But it was also true that these hydrocarbons could be made in the vacuum of space and that meteorites with these hydrocarbons have been found before. Basically, these hydrocarbons that were found in the Allen Hills meteorite are definitely a sign of life, except for the occasions when they're not. Once again, there was nothing definitively conclusive to indicate whether the Allen Hills meteorite showed signs of life or not. Either way, the NASA scientists working on this project once again put it out there that this meteorite may contain fossilized microbes of 4.5 billion year old Martian life. This gained popular media attention with over a million people checking out the scientific paper written about it. It created enough hype to attract the attention of President Bill Clinton, who acknowledged that these findings still needed to be peer-reviewed by other scientists. However, he did hold a press conference where he discussed what it could mean if the Allen Hills meteorite did indeed hold signs of Martian life. In the four-minute statement, he was able to convey the Allen Hills meteorite journey, its potential implication of life on Mars, and the importance of further scientific study in the area of astrobiology. However, as soon as Clinton finished speaking, the only follow-up questions were by a reporter pressing Clinton about an abortion issue important to the Republican Party at the time, and a second question asking Clinton where he got his tie. While Clinton was pronouncing what might possibly be the greatest scientific finding for life on other planets, the lack of enthusiasm was palatable. The Allen Hills meteorite not only wasn't interesting to many religious Americans, but the mere suggestion that it could contain evidence of life on another planet 
infuriated some. The lab working on the Allen Hills meteorite had to take down its website and contact information after religious fundamentalists claimed that their findings contradicted the Bible. Life on other planets, even at the end of the 20th century, was just too radical for many religious fundamentalists to accept. Ultimately, no single piece of evidence was enough to stand on its own to prove that the Allen Hills meteorite held signs of any ancient extraterrestrial life. And even the combination of evidence wasn't enough. Today, NASA's official website discussing the meteorite only gives all of the research about potential life one line, stating that the claim was, quote, strongly challenged, end quote. As it stands nearly two decades later, there is a case to be made that life could have existed on ancient Mars. But without further evidence, it will remain inconclusive. And therein lies the difference between the pragmatic and the faithful. While professional scrutiny demands more conclusive evidence to support a potential conclusion, religious fundamentalists merely base their conclusions on their personal interpretation of religious scripture, and went as far as to harass the team involved with the project. In the end, the Ellen Hills meteorite helped further scientific understanding, even if it couldn't conclusively produce definitive evidence of life. It helped create a stronger focus on the science of astrobiology so that if extraterrestrial life does exist out there, that it could be better understood when it was discovered. And as further sample collection continues today on Mars, the team that posited that the Allen Hills meteorite showed evidence of life may yet be vindicated. Whether or not there was life that once creeped across the surface of the ground that the Allen Hills meteorite was once a part of on Mars billions of years ago, it is widely agreed that water had washed around the rock in temperatures of around 80 degrees Fahrenheit, about 150 degrees warmer than the planet is today. It is likely that this Martian rock experienced a lot of different environments as it continued to exist on the surface of Mars for over 4 billion years, eventually becoming part of a craton of Mars. Then, about 16 million years ago, a catastrophic impact must have hit Mars to the point of ejecting surface rock into space at 
high enough velocities to escape the planet's orbit, blasting it from the only home it had known into the vast depths of space. From there, the Allen Hills meteorite floated through the silent void for the next 16 million years or so, possibly even longer. And only after that 16 million year journey did it find itself captured by the gravitational pull of Earth, crashing to the surface onto some of the oldest ice on Earth about 13,000 years ago. And there it sat, waiting millennia after millennia, until Roberta Score chanced to roll up on a snowmobile and snatch it up, the first meteorite collected that year. Today, it can be found protected in a controlled environment at the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum. And if the Allen Hills meteorite continues on with its improbable record, it will one day be freed from that as well and continue with its journey. While the Allen Hills meteorite might be the most famous achondrite meteorite, there are still many others, and they come from all over the solar system. There have been over 30 other meteorites found that are confirmed to have come from Mars. There are over 370 lunar meteorites that have been found as well likely blasted off by other meteorites. Only because meteorites hit the moon or Mars at different times, driving so much of the planet into space that they each become the direct cause for another meteor millions of years later to crash to Earth. Meteors smash into orbiting bodies, violently breaking them apart and sending the debris outward, only to repeat the process over again. In 2019, the comet Shoemaker-Levy 9 hit the planet Jupiter, causing impacts large enough to be seen from Earth for the first time. The chance of seeing a large rock collide in space with anything is extremely rare today. But rewind time back about 4.5 billion years, and the impacts around the solar system would have been both more frequent and more catastrophic. In the early solar system, there would have been more protoplanets that had accreted a considerable mass of chondrites to start forming planetary properties with an iron core and magnetic field. One example of what this might have looked like is the dwarf planet Ceres found within the asteroid belt today. At only 600 miles in diameter, 
It's still quite small compared to an actual planet like Mars at 4,000 miles in diameter or Mercury at 3,000 miles in diameter. But as these young planetary contenders cruised the solar system competing for dominance, some inevitably ended in a cataclysmic collision. One remnant of these sorts of collisions is Vesta, the second largest object in the asteroid belt after Ceres, and the largest asteroid in the belt. At just over 300 miles in diameter, with an irregular shape, it doesn't quite make the cut for a dwarf planet like Ceres. In 2007, NASA launched an orbiter to get a closer look at these two large belt objects called Dawn. In 2011, it reached Vesta, and in addition to capturing the usual impact craters, it noticed these unusual ridges along its surface. These were clear signatures of a battered rock. The Dawn mission also found that Vesta must have been in a collision with a carbonaceous chondrite so large that it changed the entire composition of the asteroid bringing organic materials and stony chondrite to this otherwise achondrite body. One theory is that there was a very low-velocity impact between Vesta and a large carbonaceous chondrite, which delivered the additional material to Vesta. If this actually occurred, the impact could have been as slow as 150 miles per hour, a rare but not impossible low-speed impact. No matter how Vesta came to hold its current composition, there is no doubt that it had gone through multiple impacts throughout its existence. And we know this especially because some of those impacts knocked off pieces of Vesta and sent them to Earth as a special type of achondrite. When Vesta was first mapped, there was a theory that a large impact hit Vesta in the South Pole, knocking massive slabs of the asteroid from its main body into space. One night in 1960, a couple of people opening a gate in the desert of Western Australia witnessed a fantastic sight, a fireball raining down from the sky. A fireball is no mere shooting star but is much larger to the point that flames are visible and can even be more colorful due to the burning of a variety of elements. The pair must have been so impressed by it that they reported it, 
but the meteorite wasn't found for another decade afterwards. When it was discovered, the meteorite was over 720 pounds and was named for the location where it was sighted, Milbilili. When this mammoth meteorite was taken in for closer inspection, it was found to be an achondrite, which means it was formed by some extraterrestrial geological process. And like the Allen Hills meteorite, Milbilili was also formed as cool lava on some surface, but the signature didn't match Mars or any other known planet. A group of astronomers figured out a key clue when looking at a group of asteroids in the asteroid belt that all had similar light signatures as Vesta, indicating that they had all been knocked off of its main body. Pieces of Vesta were somehow flung all around the asteroid belt, and some, like Milbilili, even found their way towards Earth. This is how Milbilili and all other meteorites that were found to be from Vesta were able to earn their own special label, HED meteorites, because each of the three subgroups of meteorites, H, E, and D, were a process of Vesta's geologically active history. The HED meteorites that have landed on Earth tell us that Vesta is not just a cooled globule of primordial solar system rock like your average chondritic asteroid but instead had once been a part of a planet-like body with a core of hot magma made out of mostly iron. This hot magma then flowed to the surface and cooled, creating a second type of rock. And then there was the rock between the cooled surface lava and the hot iron core that created a third type of rock. Then bits and pieces would each find their way to Earth and were classified as H, E, or D depending on which of those three processes it went through. Vesta was giving scientists clues into what had happened to early planetary bodies that did not survive the battle for dominance. Chapter 11, Part 3, The Hearts of Dead Planets, Iron Meteorites. 
But it's not the achondrites that are the best evidence of the catastrophic planetary collisions from our solar system's past. It is instead a third type of meteorite known as iron meteorites. In a league of their own, iron meteorites are basically a solid iron nickel alloy that are the easiest for amateurs to spot due to being solid chunks of metal, although only making up about 8 to 10% of all known meteorites. One of the most famous impacts in the world was created by an iron meteor, the Behringer Meteor Crater in Arizona. Meteor Crater is one of the only places on Earth that has a pockmark like the ones seen on the Moon or Mercury, with a crater nearly a mile wide and almost 600 feet deep. The meteor that collided with Arizona would have only been somewhere within the range of 100 to 150 feet in diameter to create that large of an impact. The impact occurred about 49,000 years ago, just after the time humans had left Africa for the first time. While the impact at Meteor Crater would have been as powerful as a nuclear explosion incinerating any nearby life, it would not have been large enough to create a global catastrophe, leaving humans safe from the effects of the impact. About 49,000 years ago, bison, mammoths, camels, horses, and giant ground sloths would have lived in a pine forest around the impact site when the 20 to 40 megaton blast obliterated all life nearby. To this day, land around the crater has giant boulders that were a part of the 175 million tons of displaced rock from the collision. The effects from the impact could be felt for about 1,000 miles in all directions. The impact also occurred at just about the same time that Earth began descending into one of the coldest and driest times of the most recent glaciation, which helped preserve the crater. Only because the impact site is in a desert with little erosion are we able to see it so clearly today as if it landed on the moon. The name of the meteor that created Meteor Crater is called Canyon Diablo. While achondrites are pieces of the surface of some other planetary body, iron meteorites like Canyon Diablo are pieces of the core of some long-dead protoplanet. 
planets are initially formed by enough chondrite material coming together in space that it begins to hold substantial gravity. At the center of this young chondritic planetary body, the rocks begin to crush together and melt, and tiny flecks of iron and nickel found in the chondrites sink towards the center due to their density. Therefore, in order for an iron core to develop, there needs to be a lot of chondrite material that had collected with each other to the point that they melt and pull all of their collective iron and nickel to the center. They first start out like any other piece of rocky debris in the proto-solar system, colliding into one another until they reach a size that commands respect. Like the 300-mile diameter Vesta today, these early bodies were able to create a gravity well large enough to begin drawing sizable pieces of space rock to their orbit. As they continue to grow, they lose their irregular shape and become more spherical, like the 600-mile diameter Ceres, a dwarf planet cruising a boneyard and picking up any material that gets too close. Around this stage, all of the accreted chondrite at this young planet's center would have been hot enough to melt into a small but solid iron core. This iron core turns a block of rocks into a true planet as it begins to generate its own electromagnetic field for protection and a thin atmosphere of gas begins to cling to it. But dwarf planets can get much larger than Ceres. Travel beyond Neptune's 3 billion mile orbit, and we're able to glimpse what the early solar system may have looked like. The area beyond Neptune is known as the Kuiper Belt, which is like the asteroid belt, but with an even greater incomprehensible vastness, extending from anywhere between 3 billion and 9 billion miles from the Sun. The orbit of the Kuiper Belt is 30 to 100 times greater than the orbit of the Earth around the Sun. The distance between all of the planets between the Sun and Neptune could fit two more times inside of the Kuiper Belt, with room to spare. And it is here, where rocky debris is still in the process of forming protoplanets even after 4 billion years of existence. Things happen more slowly out here. Pluto is perhaps the most famous dwarf planet, coming in at about 1,500 miles in diameter, over twice the size of Ceres, and 
also of similar size, is Charon, Pluto's moon. Other dwarf planets in the Kuiper Belt include Makimaki at about 900 miles in diameter, Haumea coming in at about 1,000 miles in diameter, and Eris, which is about the same size as Pluto, but at over twice the distance. Due to the vast reaches of the Kuiper Belt, it is rare for these mini planets to collide with one another. But it does happen. Haumea and its moons are considered to be debris from a collision from some time long forgotten. Now imagine how much more frequent collisions like these would have taken place in a young, hot, debris-filled early solar system. And when these dwarf planets collide, the results are catastrophic. The tight orbits of the inner solar system, where Mercury, Venus, Mars, and Earth reign supreme today, would have been much more likely to have dwarf-sized protoplanetary bodies apocalyptically colliding. Iron meteorites like Canyon Diablo are a stark reminder that even planets can come to violent ends. This is because the only way to make an iron meteorite is to have torn it from the molten core of a once-living planet and then discarding it on Earth. If Pluto collided with Charon, both would end up obliterated, possibly creating an entirely new planetary body in the aftermath bigger than either of the planets alone. It's likely that Vesta was part of one of these ancient collisions as well. A planet being torn apart at its core is literally world-ending, but simultaneously it can also be seen as mildly forgettable when compared to other collisions in the universe. For a person to actually witness such a collision between two planetary bodies from a safe distance would be sublime. But to witness that same event from the surface of one of those bodies would be bone-chillingly apocalyptic. There is a theory that one such protoplanetary body existed in the inner solar system about 4.5 billion years ago, named Thea. The theory proposes that Thea likely originated outside of the orbit of the Earth, but that something drew it into Earth. Perhaps an irregular orbit, or maybe the Earth's gravitational pull. This ancient planet would have been much larger than a mere dwarf planet like Pluto, and closer to the size of Mars, so that it was literally two planets 
colliding. Thea would have torn open the earth, leaving behind a massive molten gash while hunks of the planet were stripped from both of them, only to have them come back down to the surface in a rain of fire. The giant impact theory states that this ancient destructive blow between Thea and Earth is how the moon was formed. The Earth has the largest moon in the solar system, which is unusual, especially when compared to Jupiter, so large that it has more than double the mass of all the other planets combined. If any planet should have the biggest satellite, it should be Jupiter. The giant impact theory provides a rational reason on why Earth has the biggest satellite in the solar system. The moon is also tidally locked, so it's always showing the same face towards the Earth, unusual for just a captured passing satellite to do. The most likely way for the moon to have become locked to Earth in this way was to have struck it. Then there is the fact that the composition of the Earth and the moon are very similar as well. So similar that it raises more questions than answers. And we also know that four billion years ago, after the newly formed moon settled in its orbit around the Earth, it would have been so close that the moon would have loomed 15 times larger in the sky than it does today, with a magma ocean from pole to pole. The moon has been slowly pulling away from the Earth ever since, drifting away a barely imperceptible 1.5 inches per year. In their 4 billion year relationship, the moon may have drifted as much as 200,000 miles further away from Earth compared to where it started. But the moon will never escape. The Earth will not release its grasp until the sun dies, still a distant 5 billion years into the future. The Earth and the moon are an example of a collision that was survived in some way by both planets that were originally involved in the collision. But the many that did not survive threw chunks of their iron-nickel cores across the solar system, only to crash into another planet, just like how some unknown protoplanet sent Canyon Diablo to Earth, only to, once again, begin the process of burrowing back towards the core. 
thank you for listening to this episode of No Character Limit. Every episode, the sources that I used are located in the description if you would like to check them out. In addition, please consider liking, rating, and reviewing if you enjoyed this podcast, as each one goes to help further the reach of this podcast for new people to hear. Each episode requires hours in research, writing, recording, and editing. So if you feel that what you just heard is worth a donation of any size, please go to the description and follow the links for that. Each donation comes with a free PDF copy of a writing piece of your choice, no matter the size of your donation, and you get a lot of extra features with that, including a lot of the artwork and graphs and pictures, as well as the descriptions that I don't include in the podcast. If you would like updates for new episodes, you can follow No Character Limit at mastodon.world. And finally, if you have a question, comment, or even a correction, please feel free to reach out at nocharacterlimit at protonmail.com. Thank you again for listening.